Welcome to the Cafe Medium Podcast. and thank you for tuning in to this, the 33rd episode of the Cafe Medium Podcast. I'm the host, Lathan Gorbett. I want to let everybody know who tuned into the last episode about Batten Disease and the Everything Matters event that was held at Omri Studios in Northwest Portland, that not only was the event a success in terms of meeting and even exceeding their donation goals, but the event was a success in terms of clearly communicating the message of compassion, education, and advocacy for a rare but devastating disease. Please go to bdsra.org fightingformaya.com, where Maya is spelled M-A-Y-A, or aquanutsphotography.com for more information on how this group of civic leaders are working to make a difference. This podcast has been an ever-evolving project, whereby which I've been in a pretty constant state of reflection and analysis about what exactly I want it to become. I've had some episodes that are more pleasant than others, some where I attempt to get a bit more controversial for the sake of expanding the conversation about a given topic, and others that are just fun for the sake of being fun, and I think I enjoy the latter much more. As much as I like to dive into a good debate or go into attack mode, I've become less and less interested in the snarkiness that certain subject matters can easily lead to, and I say easily because I don't often find that my best self or my most intelligent self is necessarily guiding the discussion. It tends to be my, op- uh, my opinionated self at the helm, and within my own, uh, my own opinion and beliefs is not where I typically find the most value or peace with things. So as a means of accountability, I'm putting this out there, and I hope that it contributes to the evolving process whereby which this show develops and I develop into the kind of host, reporter, and content creator that I want to be providing this sort of con- uh, contributing um, storytelling and ideas um, that, that I hope my growing audience will find to be of value and worthy of sharing with others. If this is your first time tuning in, please go to cafemedium.com, iTunes, or Stitcher, and take a listen to any of the past episodes as I keep them all up, even if they don't necessarily project the version of myself that I'm the most proud of. And your feedback is always welcome. Now on to today's episode. I've always said that I'm not necessarily great at any one thing. Rather, my strength has always been in my ability to align myself with great people. This show tends to be made up of guests that I'm able to pull from my own personal network, and today's episode is no exception. For many people listening, the song Marry You by Bruno Mars will immediately make you think of that viral video from spring of 2012 where a girl with headphones on in the back of a RAV4 was surprised with a choreographed scene of friends, family, and even a marching band to this song. Where at the end, a man in black in a a black suit walks through the crowd of dancers and proposed to her. This turned into what is still considered one of the most viral proposal videos ever and gave today's guest, Isaac Lamb, national recognition. But that's not what makes Isaac such a great guest. In a world of social media, pop culture, reality TV, and yes, viral videos, it is still uh, at the ground level, the local level, 
where the artists are honing their crafts and churning a continuing culture of thought-provoking and entertaining art that without the local people expanding the realm of new ideas and being willing to step outside of our collective comfort zone, we wouldn't have some of the coolness that has made its way into the mainstream access in the way that it has in the way that we see it today. Isaac is a longtime company member of Third Rail Repertory Theater and is constantly engaged in acting, producing, and directing on stage and beyond. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did recording it. Uh, we recorded a couple weeks ago at the Tao of Tea on Southeast Belmont, uh, which I highly recommend checking out. Um, so without further delay, I give you Isaac Lamb. So what you wanna do? Let's just run, girl. All right, we're jamming. <laughs> Isaac. Thanks a lot for sitting down. I'm so happy to be here, finally. Yeah, uh, we had some holdups. Um, I think I announced that we were going to be recording twice now. Yeah. Um, first time I had some something I needed to run to the hospital for. Yeah, should we call this the urgent care episode? Right. <laughs> and it was weird because it was a, um, I was having these weird little vision spots in front of my left eye where it was like taking out it was like clouding my vision right in the center that's and scary it was weird yeah and i thought i actually my family has a history of aneurysm so i was like oh shit oh. is this happening oh, man. And so that was happening for two days so i ran to the urgent care um later i found out that it was most likely a type of migraine that you don't feel pain uh. so um yeah, whatever it was, they just said, stop drinking so much caffeine, basically. <laughs> they were like, stop doing so many drugs. Like right. <laughs> and then they sent me for a CT scan, mm-hmm. which I didn't, I never go to the hospital for anything, but I didn't realize that they don't sit down and talk to you about how much this thing costs. And nope. I got a $1,900 bill for a CT scan. Dude, do you have insurance? I do have insurance. That was, I mean. Well, that was above and beyond what that was the above, cost. That, that, well, that was uh, part of my deductible. Oh, Because crap. downside to the whole Affordable Care Act, which I'm not going to complain about because a lot of people get insurance because of, you know, I have to lose a little bit for other people to gain, so I'm okay sure. with it. But um, our deductibles went way up. Yeah, yeah. And so, but then I went in recently for something else, and it was for a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not a CT scan, but what's the other thing called? MRI. MRI. Mm-hmm. And the, guy, the, the people said it was going to cost 600 So, anyway. That's a whole different thing, but and then you had something last week when yeah, we sat down. Yeah, I just thought I had appendicitis. Yeah, um, that turned out to I think either be food poisoning or gas. That was their <laughs> that was their determination. So, you're welcome, America, for that inside a peek into my colon. Inside, <laughs> a little bit of inside Isaac Lamb. Yeah, there you um, go. But so, uh, for sake of introduction, um, you are for lack of a more in-depth description you are an active uh, I mean, you're an actor um, you're a theater creative and yeah. you're also a director yes um, you want to kind of give a little bit of backstory on on, on who that? I am yeah on who you are yeah I mean I would call myself I guess a I don't know this sounds kind of pretentious now that I feel like I want to say it of like an artist I guess I'm an artist because I do so. You're right. I do so many things. I don't. I'm. I'm an actor, a director for theater and for television. I act and I direct and um, do some commercial work, and I also write and create and do music and um, yeah, I do quite a bit of of different things. 
So I guess an artist is probably the best way to describe me. That is so pretentious. I know. <laughs> you just like, well, I'm just vomit right I know, now. I feel it's gross <laughs> in my own skin just sitting next to It's the worst. <laughs> yeah. I could not be more. I'm sitting in a tea shop calling myself an artist in right. Portland, Oregon. I could not be more of a cliche. But you were telling me, you were giving me some backstory on this tea shop. So we're sitting at Dow of Tea. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the two o'clock would be a slow time for him, but it's actually good for them. It's popping. And uh, you might hear me kind of munching a little bit. I'm eating um, roasted yam. If you guys get a chance, this roasted yam is actually one of my favorite thing I've tasted in Portland. Not no shit. So it's just roasted yam with cilantro and black salt. Love it. Simple. Um, We're drinking chai. So anyway, um, the backstory on this building. You have some interesting history. Well, this building used to be, I mean, I think it's always been owned by the folks who own Dow of Tea. uh, And they used to, for a very very long time actually, lease part of the back part of this building out to theater companies in Portland to be uh, to produce. There's a small theater in the very back that's about 40 seats that used to be the home of Profile Theater. And then there's a slightly larger theater on this side of it, of that theater, and it used to be the home of Theater Vertigo and a couple of other companies. So um, for a lot of years, this building was known as the Theater Theater Building, and um, Triangle Productions was in here. A lot of long-time Portland theater companies did work work in here um and if you know anything about the portland theater scene uh one of the big challenges these days and i think it's true for most artists in the city is finding space Mm. and at a certain point the dow of tea just grew their business grew to the to the size where they needed the the entire building um and so those theater companies lost the space and and portland sadly lost two small um affordable theater spaces and there haven't been a lot of places that have popped up to replace them in the in the years since. That was about four or five years ago now. Are there a lot of theaters in Portland? Because there's a few that you always hear about, right? The one yeah, you, Portland you're Center Stage, yeah. Artist Repertory Theater, Third Rail, which is my theater company, yeah. Third Rail Repertory Theater, Portland Playhouse. Those are sort of like the big four. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably throw Broadway Rose Theater Company in there. They do musical theater uh, and, and uh, Profile, you know, some theaters that are all kind of working on a professional, a really seriously professional level. But um, there's an entire swath of theaters in Portland that work um, uh, anywhere from a community theater level where it's just sort of all volunteer work to sort of semi-professional theaters that pay stipends. Um, I think something like at last count, I'm not sure who counted, but at last count there was something like... um, Near, almost n- near 200 theater companies in Portland. Oh, really? Not that they're all all producing right. all the time, right? But that includes anywhere from professional to semi-professional theaters. There's about 200 separate companies. Um, some just do a show a year. Some do a, a small season. Some do a full season. It's um, it's actually a very robust uh, ecology in terms of the amount of work that's out there. Um, I I don't get out enough um, in the theaters, but What's the company that put on the puts on the Beatles or the White White Album Christmas production? White that's a, Album Christmas. White Album Christmas. I don't know, but I want to go see it now. I it's don't. <laughs> amazing. It's a cir- it's a circus production on a oh. stage. Um, I'll, um, it's easy to look it up, but um, Google that. Google if you're that listening, shit. Google that. Google shit. that shit. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fascinating. I don't know who does that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine that's probably... The, the other thing is there's, there's a whole comedy scene in Portland, too, that's really starting to, to grow and become something else. 
Um, the Bridgetown Comedy Festival was just here mm. um, in Portland, and they get people like Patton Oswalt and Ian Carmel, who's a you know a famous comedian and a writer for Late Night with James Corden. He's a Portland native. Mm. He kind of came through the the Portland comedy scene. Shane Torres. Uh, there's a there's a, a number of really well known comedians coming out of Portland, and that scene is starting to kind of explode have, too. Have you ever thought about doing stand up? Well, it's funny. I did a show. I mean, I kind of got my big break as an actor because I so I was working on the first season of The Apprentice. Mm. Let that settle in for a second. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So in, in what, in what uh, I was um facet? I was a transcriber and a logger, which meant that I sat in a dark room for about. 10 hours a day and just typed up every single thing that Donald Trump or Omarosa or Bill Rancic or any of those guys from the first season said. Hmm. So essentially I just like for the editors to go back in and say, Hey, we we need somebody saying a line that's like this. They could just search a document that I'd created. Hmm. So that was my job. It was horrible. It was one of the worst jobs. No, (laughs) no, I quit. There's my comedy. Um, no, the funny thing is, is during this last presidential election, when everybody was searching for the next, you know, Access Hollywood style tape, um, everybody thought that there was all this tape, this footage from The Apprentice, which, by the way, I'm totally positive there was. There's mm. like some horrible, horrible stuff out there. I just can't remember what any of it was specifically, but I got called by the Washington Post and oh, a number really? of papers and national news organizations. All of which were hunting down anyone who had, you know, was on the record as having worked for The Apprentice. Is there anything that you remember that's not written down? No. Really? And that's the thing is, like, I that was probably 2003 mm-hmm. that I did that. Yeah. So it was 13 years ago. And if I ever, if there's ever any part of me that thought that Donald Trump was, was ever potentially going to be the president yeah. of the United States, I would have I would have stolen some footage right. or like put it in a pocket for the yeah. future. But I mean it is it, just so absurd. I mean it's just such an absurd thought still, but back then it was even more absurd. I mean, so I, absurd. Yeah. I that show, I mean that show invented him in a way that or reinvented him in a way that didn't really you know, didn't really match up with who he was. Which you would yeah. think it would have hurt him. And I think it did with some people, but the fact that he's where he's at, I know it's it's and it's absurd. My anxiety level just <laughs> I know I wake I know right my I wake up every day and I'm like, what do I have to like? How am I gonna breathe through yeah. the rest of this day with all of the sh- crazy shit that keeps happening? I took a break from this podcast um, partially unintentionally because uh, my daughter was born last May. Um, I had a house remodel going on that was just awful. It was. Um, just not being very well organized by the contractor. And so anyway, the, um, and then I also realized that my entire self was being consumed by this election. And I was like, I don't really want to hit record when all I'm going to do is just bitch about whatever I just heard on the news or saw on Facebook. And yeah, I feel like that is, that is the sort of traumatized state that the United States of America is in right now. I feel like everything I talk about, everything, every conversation I have, every every time our theater company sits down to think about what kind of plays we want to produce and what kind of work we want to do, what kind of conversations we want to have, it's just like you can't escape it. It is, yeah. it, and it's in a way. I, I remember. I often think about like the W. Bush years, and I remember thinking like I was mad a lot of the time. I was angry a lot of the time. And, and I, you know, just so wholeheartedly disagreed with almost everything that came out of that administration. But I was, 
really never scared for the foundations of our democracy. Right. You know, it was or like just disappointed. Yeah, right? I, I mean, it, it didn't feel like I, 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 I felt pretty profound disappointment mm. during the George W. Bush years, especially when he was reelected. You know, it was like I remember the days after that election being really difficult. But I also, like, I don't look back at, you know, 2000 to 2008 and only see, you know, anxiety and stress. There was a lot of amazing things happened in my life during that time. And I never felt like this is the end of America, you know? Do you feel like that? Like, that's where my anxiety takes me, you know? <laughs> okay, so, so you, you bring up a good point then. Because I think that you are one of the people that I see on social media that when you do post things, even in, with disappointment... There's this sort of like, uh, it, it doesn't feel just like hate. It doesn't feel so, it doesn't stress me out to see your political posts. When some people I see it and I'm like, I have to unfollow this person, like many probably unfollowed me. Um, but I always, sometimes I saw your, your post and you're one of the few people I'm like, okay, he doesn't seem to just post every single thing that comes to his head, right? You, you seem to be calculated and you seem to have actually put some little bit of thought into what you're, you're writing. Um, how do you... How do you differentiate, how do you compartmentalize these, these ideas and these thoughts in your head? That's a really excellent question. I mean, I'm glad to hear that about my social media feed. I think partly that's because I find going on Facebook these days or going on Twitter these days um, enormously overwhelming. And there are days where I, I just don't, I, I don't go there because I, I can't. I can't see another 17 posts from, you know, Occupy Democrats USA or, or you know, like all of these in, insane. Who I've unfollowed. Yeah, right. I've unfollowed them. And, yeah, and, you know. and it's like, in, in a way, it, I mean, I think it's true. Like, disinformation is disinformation. Mm -hmm. I don't think, if, even if it's for our side, our side being the Democrats, you know, um, it's like, I'd, I. I don't think it gets us anywhere. It doesn't get us anywhere to um, to be a part of the problem, you know. And I think part of the problem is that not enough people in this country are informed about how their government works, about how um, their leaders are elected, about who they're responsible to, and who they're, um, you know, who and how to call them to account for their actions and their decisions. I think those are the most important questions for for citizens to be asking themselves right now. Um, and I was I was very lucky that um, all throughout my education I was taught by um, political science teachers and I took constitutional law in college even though I wasn't a law student but I've always been fascinated by by the political process and by the legal process and I worked with um, professors who valued critical thinking over overall else and and I think to be a good lawyer to be a good politician to be a good process oriented person. I think this is true to be a good theater artist. You have to think critically all the time and in a way that is constructive. And so posting some, you know, ridiculous uh, hair on Donald fire Trump sent yeah, doesn't seem constructive to me. Yeah. I, I feel like I want to be part of, the, part of the solution, not the problem. And yet I also, I understand, like, people need to vent their anxieties. And I feel like... Sadly, a lot of what you see on social media is venting of anxiety. And I think it's such a powerful platform that could be helping us, you know, and, and does, I think. You think you see this with, like, the Women's March. It's like it does unify yeah. groups of people. And it has had um, marked effects on the, the resistance, for lack of a better word. So 
I try. I don't know. I try to be really judicious about it. Part, partly, though, I think that's just born out of self-care. You know, yeah. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to make that's it a worse. Very good point. I, I want to make it worse. You know, the critical thinking portion. I think um, whether you are a Trump supporter or whether you're a Bernie supporter or whether you're a flat earther or whatever you might be or a religious person, whatever it is, I think that the most valuable thing you can do is to just critically almost take your own personal thoughts through the, like the scientific method a little bit. Try to dissect them, try to disprove them, and try to find where you might... When I find holes in my own thinking, mm -hmm. it's the most refreshing idea. It's like, okay, shit, I, I don't have to be so bound to this, this idea that... And I can't even think of anything right now because I've kind of... I feel like I've just let go a lot of those, the stress things that are, that are bound by ideology. I, I, That's I, so great. I used to be so ideological. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm less so now. Um, but I'm still, you know, somebody asked, well, you know, how can you be, how can you walk party lines? I can do that because, first of all, even if we have a Democratic person running for the Senate in Oregon, and maybe I don't necessarily love him uh, or her, I'll likely still vote for them because I want the votes in the Senate because I feel like the Democrats tend to adhere to my values a little bit more, or much more. Um, so I don't think it's just, you're, I don't think you're like some blind sheep if you walk a party line necessarily, as long as that party is adhering to your values. But what this current president's doing, I don't know whose values he's really adhering to other than maybe racist values. But I, I don't want to call him a racist and I want to call all Trump supporters racist. But it seems like those are the people that are the most, the anti-immigrant, the anti-Muslim, the anti-people the anti people mm -hmm. seem to be the most attracted to him. I think, I think what... What it's fair to call Donald Trump is a narcissist. Oh, absolutely. And There's I think no I think what it boils down to for me is that do I th do I think Donald Trump is is like a white nationalist racist? Probably not by like identif self identification, right. but he's not above utilizing those ideologies to get nope. ahead. And he's that standard. makes I don't think that makes him any, any better. better. Nope. And so uh, you know, like uh, one of the things that in terms of of thinking as a society outside of our own white nationalistic foundation which is what we what we have built a society upon is a, a society of, of white supremacy um, we have to be extra critical of the decisions we make and the people we put in power and we have to be extra critical of ideologies because we're already blinded by the fact that we're living in a white supremacist society whether we know it or not I know that's the kind of language that just sort of seems to like light light pe certain people's hair on fire um but but i think what you're getting at is is a value that that i don't think we we really support enough in america which is humility right like if you're going to be self-critical then you have to be humble mm -hmm. and humility is not a value that in any way shape or form donald trump seems to possess or um prioritize and the people who voted for him don't seem to prioritize it either and the truth is i would so much rather elect somebody who knows what they don't know mm -hmm. than somebody who doesn't know what they don't know. Maybe maybe even a Mike Pence if there is a... I mean, I, I, I agree with almost nothing that, that right. comes out of that man's mouth. Um, and, and I have to say that his sort of, his sort of tacit um, uh, joining of power with Donald Trump doesn't help him in make, no. a, make a case. But even somebody who is diametrically opposed to my beliefs, but who I believe... Um, will listen to counsel, who I believe uh, has a set of ideals and a code by which he lives or she lives, um, and who I believe 
actually has the best interests of the American dem democratic experiment in mind, mm -hmm. I am so much more comfortable with a leader like that than yeah. someone like Donald Trump, who is primarily out for himself. My only fear with Pence is I feel like he'd be more efficient. Yeah. Um, I feel like Donald Trump's so inefficient that he's likely not going to get anything substantial passed through as law. Um, but I think his biggest, I think the biggest threat that he poses has more to do with the ideological and the cultural impact that he's having on America. Uh, but I think that Pence could actually have the ability to pass legislation, um, get legislation through the, the both, both. Well, he's houses. a traditional, you know, conservative Republican yeah. establishment. But at guy. least he's not an embarrass, a complete embarrassment, right? I also believe he's a, I believe he's a patriot in a way yeah. that I don't believe Donald Trump is a patriot. Right. I think Donald Trump would sell America down the river if he thought he could make a buck doing it. Yeah. And with Mike Pence, I don't necessarily believe that. The hard thing for me right now is, is with with the firing of James Comey and the the sort of boldly authoritarian moves that seem to be kind of a daily occurrence out of this White House, the stifling of dissent and arresting journalists and um, all of these really troubling signs. Uh, you know, Richard Nixon, when he committed, you know, crimes that seem to threaten the constitutional fiber, uh, fiber fabric of America. It was a bipartisan legislature that that put a, put an end to it, that put the pressure on him to resign. Um, it was Republicans and Democrats standing up and saying that the president is threatening the power of the checks and balances that are written into our Constitution. And so based on principle, on a patriotic principle of American democracy first, we're going to stand up and say no to this this man, even though he's in our party. And he, didn't he even, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, anybody listening, um, but didn't he actually acknowledge that and just say, yeah, I kind of fucked up. Like I didn't, that this was not my intention as being a leader of the country. You know, I feel like he took a... I don't know enough about Nixon yeah, necessarily yeah. to say. Um, this was something I recently was... I was reading through some article or something recently, and it, it was it was hinting yeah. at that. And I, I want to do a little bit more research. I mean, he was it. certainly a political animal, um, yeah. but but I, I just think now where is where is the courageous, principled Republican opposition? Mm -hmm. You know, where are where are the brave? Well, you they know, need them to get elected in the next in the midterms. Yeah, but I mean, where yeah, like where are the people who are going to stand up and say this is not this is not okay? Um, my job, my job, be damned! I'm not going to let the fabric of American society be threatened by this, you know, narcissistic idiot in yeah. the, in the White House. Um, where is the courageous Republican opposition? I like now is the time to show I, your moral. I fiber. feel like uh, Lindsey Graham, who I would have been fine with as president. Um, what's his name? John uh, McCain. John McCain, but what's his name um, from Ohio? Uh, oh, Rob Portman? No, he's running for president. He was like... Oh, uh, um, um, I know who you're talking about. Um, Man. He won the Ohio primary. Yeah, he did. Kasich, <laughs> John Kasich. John Kasich, there you go. Yeah. I would have been okay seeing that guy. You know, like, yeah. And these guys are standing up to him. And I feel like a lot of them didn't... Uh, it seemed like, like a Paul Ryan guy, they said, well, shit, I need his constituents in order to get reelected, so I'll kind of walk this line for a while and get to get elected and then he needs him for the midterms and I, I I'm pretty sure somebody's gonna run against him and I hope so I hope so but I also think 
you know, the, I saw the New York Times, uh, they called John McCain and Lindsey Graham the sort of all bark, no bite Republican opposition. Mm. And I feel like that's, that's, that's where I've, that's where I find it to be true is you can stand up and say, oh, I really question the president's actions, mm -hmm. or you can actually take action yeah. to investigate the president. You can call for independent counsel. You can... I think um, Lindsey Graham has now. He kind of publicly said something Initially yesterday. he said it wasn't, you know, he that Trump could do whatever he wanted mm -hmm. and could fire the FBI, which is legally is true. Yeah. Um, certainly isn't the tradition, but... Um, yeah, I mean, without getting into the, all the details yeah, of yeah. who said what and who didn't, I just feel like, like there's threatening action and then there's taking action, yep. and um, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for a courageous Republican to take action, because now is the time to write yourself onto the right side of history. Mm -hmm. Now I, is the time, and it's gonna be it, before you know it, it's going to be gone. And I would love to see two strong parties, and, and you know, I'd love two. to see a Republican party that once in a while somebody comes through and makes me think I might be able to vote for that person. You know, there were some there were some moments where I was like. If John Kasich runs against Hillary Clinton, I may actually have a hard time with that vote yeah. because he can hear the cries of Democrats across the country right. now as, right. you say, as you say that. Right. Because this podcast wailing is, out. is being so yes. widespread. Millions of, millions <laughs> millions of listeners. Of listeners. <laughs> um, okay. So as somebody who's um, not as, you know, we we're talking about ideology. Uh, we've had our, our conversations before about, about religion. I think that's a good segue because you grew up. Catholic, yes, right, and I, I have actually, um, not to toot your horn too much uh, or blow smoke <laughs> up your what, which the okay, whatever the, <laughs> the term is, um, but you've actually some of the posts you've put up regarding the new pope are mm. probably where I've learned almost everything about the new pope because mm. you know people can post stuff, the New York Times can post something, or um, any any of these guys or even atheists are posting stuff about him, but as somebody who comes from uh, Je Jesuit, Jesuit, or Jesuit, Je Jesuit yeah. um, background, and you've you've posted some articles off of what I would consider the mainstream news sources mm. um, about this new pope, and you, you've written some posts about it. Um, so, what's your what's your take on, I guess, the church as a whole, how it's how it's positioned itself in the world, and where do you currently stand with it? Um. Wow, that's a big question. Yeah, yeah tell me yeah. about the Catholic Church. Yeah, tell me all about it. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I am the proud uh, product of a Jesuit education. Um, and for those of you who, who don't know what what that means, is within the Catholic Church, there's several different orders, priestly orders, that uh, were started by you know saints or priests along the way, and they all have sort of a, a different um, devotion in terms of the, their lifetime's work. The, for the Jesuits, it's education. That was their, their kind of their main focus. And they were founded by a man, St. Ignatius Loyola, who was uh, a medieval Catholic and had a, um, oh my gosh, my friends Rebecca and Darius just walked into the room as oh. we're recording this podcast. Were they in Hi your guys. video? They, um, Rebecca was. In, in the uh, in the in YouTube the video, in the proposal video. So yeah. for those of you who we're don't know, we're recording a podcast. Isaac's kind of claim to terrified. national fame was a YouTube video that went viral where he proposed to his now wife in the back. She was sitting in the back of a what was it, Rav Four? Of a, of a yeah, Rav Four. And yeah. to the to 
I think I want to marry you by Bruno Mars. Yes. You might remember all the dancers and everything. So uh, we'll put a link up to it in the show notes, but I'm sure everybody's seen it. But so you were in that video. Rebecca was in the video. Okay. Say hi, Rebecca. Hello. <laughs> Rebecca is one of the women who comes through and clapping. Yeah, that's right. Clapping that's right. and dancing in the background. Yes. My husband marches and holds a laptop. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, he's the one who is um, determinedly lip syncing all of the lyrics. He's only he's the only one doing it too, which I was very proud of him for. Yeah. Well, it's good to meet you. Yeah. And it was interesting, actually. Uh, before, well, actually, the person who just left, who was sitting behind you, is one yeah. of the artists for McMiniman. So all the artwork you see in McMiniman. Oh my gosh! She was so she was sitting right. So this is an interesting place. Yeah, it's, it's a gathering of artists. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, yeah, it's great. What were we talking about? Um, you were talking about the Jesuit. Oh, uh, the Jesuit education. Yeah, Jesuit education. Yeah. So the the essence of the Jesuit order is is uh, essentially to start universities, high schools um, around the world, and so some of the. I guess more well-known Jesuit universities would be um, like uh, uh, Georgetown or um, Loyola Marymount, which is where I went to school in Los Angeles, Loyola Chicago. A lot of them are called Loyola. Um, Loyola? Loyola, yeah. St. Ignatius Loyola was the founder of the Jesuit order. Um, But one of the cool things is that this Pope, Pope Francis, he came from the Jesuit order, and he's the first pope in the history of the Catholic Church to be both from South America mm-hmm. and also to be a Jesuit. And uh, that's that was really exciting for me, even though I'm no longer a practicing Catholic. That was really exciting for me because for a long, long time, the, the Jesuits have sort of been known as the most liberal order mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church. Um, and a big, I think, I think that's it's not accidental that that's the case, given that their focus has always been on, on truly like a liberal arts education. Some of the most um, critical thinking I've ever been asked to do have been by Catholic Jesuit priests, and a lot of uh, my interest in, I think, in humility, in trying to figure out what I don't know, and um, being open to like critical thinking and other points of view has has been owed to the fact that I was. Um, educated by Jesuits. So this Pope, um, I think, has demonstrated that in, you know, some pretty astounding ways in opening up the church to sort of new horizons that have felt closed off for a long, long time. Um, And so I think it's been exciting for Catholics and ex-Catholics and, you know, um, semi-practicing Catholics uh, to see that the church is moving in a more liberal, more modern Direction. Do you think that's the church as a whole, or do you think that's more the Jesuit, um, what do you call it, a branch? Uh, the order. Order. Um, I think the church as a whole, I mean, truthfully, uh, I can only speak to this from an American perspective, um, but certainly the American, um, I don't know what you would call it, the American diaspora, that's not the right word, the American church, the, the people who make up the American Catholic church, I think have always been more socially liberal than the church itself. Mm-hmm. You know, va- the Vatican has, has kept a pretty tight hold of, I don't know what you might call old world family values for many, many years. When American Catholics, I think we're ready to, to move beyond some of those things and into something more contemporary. So in a way, you can't really speak of the church as a whole because I am sure that's not true for some more conservative areas of the world. Mm-hmm. Particularly, you know, like Italian Catholics are, are known for being fairly conservative. So the church is, is many, many different things. I know that the American church has felt 
to me, ready to make some steps towards, you know, further social justice and um, a more contemporary view of humanity, of of sex, of sexual identity, of all of those things. It was a few years back that the church publicly announced that they accept evolution as a probable... Well, the, if not the, something to if not something to take a stance against, right? Yeah. Well, the truth is actually the Catholic Church has long been sort of ahead of the curve on evolution, strangely, mm. uh, especially considering the fact that we have a, a pretty complicated relationship in our history with science. Um, you know, the Catholic Church, you know, was the one that labeled Galileo a heretic, and you know there was a lot, a lot, a lot through the last, you know couple of uh, millennia that that it's very political right that we shouldn't be super proud of in terms of our politics and our science but in the last about 50 to 80 years of the Catholic Church um, that's radically shifted um, the Catholic Church actually always supported the theory of evolution pretty much from Vatican II on um, I think in the last few decades the last couple of popes have made it um, made it very clear that or sort of I guess more explicit that we are not a creationist religion um, or that we are and that does not uh, preclude us from also believing in evolution that evolution could be the tool by which God creates the universe uh, there you go and and essentially that's what I think uh, in a recent encyclical the Pope wrote about was underlining the fact that that has been a Catholic belief for for quite some time um, so that's something I think I'm, I'm really I'm really proud of it's, always, it's reminding me of some conversations I've had with Jews over the years where um, conversations with a rabbi have been the thing that's led them out or led them away from religion and, it, and not so indirectly either. Like I heard a conversation or I had a conversation with somebody one time that said that their rabbi actually told them that it was okay to leave the religion, that going to hell wasn't something that they were going to be threatened by because that's not how they necessarily view heaven and hell. Um, but it was more important that they follow the path that's in their heart and uh, the, the, through critical thinking and, and things. So when you've posted things about, you know, it's also you know, more, like I said, more liberal, more kind of changing its position or at least its communication on things like gay marriage and taking these strong ideological stances against human beings. And is it better to be a good person or is it better to be hardline religion and dogmatic? dogmatic? Yeah. yeah. So would you say that the, the Jesuits are a little less dogmatic? I would, I would say that's been in my experience of yeah. them. The truth is I, I am, I myself, Isaac Lamb am personally, I think far more liberal than even the Jesuits. Mm are currently willing to be um, and again distinguishing the individual from from the doctrine you know is important um, and I think one of the things I've always been been uh, sort of eager to to see in the Catholic Church is an openness or an intellectualness that um, is less dogmatic and more moving from a place of humility and compassion and I think that that is what, more than anything for me, is hopeful about Pope Francis, is that even when, for instance, on the issue of gay marriage, even when the doctrine of the church seems to disagree with the, um, the spirit of the human being, which wants to be ups uh, uh, accepting and, and generous, mm -hmm. um, Francis is much more interested in the compassion and the humility being the godly impulse than the doctrine of the written word or the interpretation of the written word. And so 
I think that's how I think that's how large organizations, religious or otherwise, move in the right direction is with humility and compassion first, rather than the rule of law. Well, maybe if you feel like exploring this with me a little bit, I I, I don't know a year and a half or so ago, I, I had this idea that that if if you could take anything of specific from biblical text. Um, it's probably things like the Ten Commandments and the Seven Deadly Sins, right? Seven Deadly Sins, one of them being pride. And it seems to me to be very prideful if you can, with limited information and resources and, and, and evidence, stake a claim so strong that you're willing to tell people what, who they can marry, who they can love, um, what kind of language that they can use when they speak, um, and, and what kind of plants that they can smoke, you know, whatever it might be, that you're willing to take such a strong line that you're willing to be an anti-another human being because of how you, with most likely your very limited understanding of the text, can interpret an ancient text. Does that... I, I, I really want to like, I actually want to have this conversation with a, with a priest or with somebody who is far more, you know, theologically uh, knowledgeable than me. That'd be fascinating. I yeah. mean, I, I find that, that uh, if, I, if, if anyone who's listening takes nothing away from this podcast, take away my recommendation that, uh, that you go and read um, a, a Jesuit priest by the name of Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R. He actually, you can find a lot of him on podcasts. He's been on the Robcast and um, You Made It Awkward with Pete Holmes. And mm. um, uh, he's kind of, he's everywhere. You can find him all over the place. And he's a really forward thinking spiritual thinker from the Catholic tradition. Um, and his, one of the things that I've read and taken away from his writing, reading and writing, it's why I think I believe so strongly in the value of humility is, is that very often as human beings, we try to limit our interpretation of God and what God is and wants and what his plans, his or her or its plans might be. We are only limited by our human imagination and our human imagination is incredibly limited. And to think that a div like a divine power or some, some divine presence or spirit can be limited by what's possible only for humans is an absurd exercise on its face. And so as much as I think, yes, the seven deadly sins and the 10 commandments are things that are like, you can clearly pull out of those texts and think, well, these are really like well-defined. Mm -hmm. They're not created know, by the church. However, though. yeah, th they were written by man. Um, and uh, if we quoted the Beatitudes, uh, as frequently as we quoted the Ten Commandments, I'd be far, I'd be far more apt. What do you mean to believe that the um, that the in in the texts themselves? Well, the Beatitudes are, you know, what Jesus says in the Gospels are, um, you know, uh, feed the hungry, clothe the poor, visit the imprisoned, all of those things. When you do those things for anyone, you do them for Jesus. That's the the speech from you know the Beatitudes. And, and they're all about living with Christian compassion, right? They're all about not judging. They're all about um, going to the lowliest. Jesus was all about, you know, being with the poorest of the poor, the sickest of the sick. And any time that you dedicated your life, any portion of your life to those people, you were dedicating your life to Jesus. And so often what I see from, particularly in America, what I see from 
you know, supposedly the most Christian among us are um, Old Testament values, like an eye for an eye. You know, uh, all of these things that 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 Jesus came in the second half of the Bible and said, um, that's not all. That's not the whole picture. The whole picture has to include compassion. It has to include humility. And yet we spend so much time talking about what to do or not to do and who's right and who's wrong. And what Jesus is saying is if you want to be a part of my church, um, love each other and care for each other and put the rest of it aside. See, that's what I'm talking about with the the kind of optimistic or less uh, stressful ways in which you approach things because the more cynical person towards religion like myself might say, oh, look, God changes mind. The almighty God changes mind. But what you're saying is, no, he's just filling in the the gaps. He's filling in the rest of the picture. Um, I think you might also say that even even the gospels themselves are interpretations of events. Yeah. They're all it's all in I mean this is what the Catholic Church believes and it's what I believe is that the Bible is a very human interpretation of divine action and and historical event. You you know and written in such a creative and um uh parabolous way that it that it can teach us something about our lives. But it isn't a dictionary. It isn't so an encyclopedia. So it's not God breathed. It is. I mean, isn't that the thing with the evangelicals and fundamentalists? Is that it's God breathed? God actually yes, well, wrote I, them through their hands. And that's where the, the 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 Catholic Church departs from evangelical Christianity is that we we don't believe the Bible is literal text. So you said we. You, no. what, what, I still do identify right. as a Catholic. I guess you do. So so when you say you're a non-practicing, what does that what does that? I don't mean? go to church on Sunday. So. What about what? What separates you, other than the church on Sunday? What separates you from being a Catholic? Um, I think. I think. Honestly, I don't believe everything the Catholic Church teaches. I don't believe that that, for instance, uh, homosexual, uh, homosexual or premarital sex are you know inherently sinful. I don't believe that. Um, I don't believe a lot of the things that, that Catholic social teaching says are dogmatic truths. I don't believe that God cares anything beyond are you loving and compassionate to each other. I, and but you so, believe in a God of intent. You believe that there's a, a, another power. I do. Uh, yes. With that has intent. Yeah, and I don't. But I don't believe intent means God has a plan for me. I don't mm-hmm. think that means that there's like a. Like he There's knew you were going to have I'm, your gas I'm, last yeah. week before you, like before you were even born. Yeah, right. no, I don't think that he does that. I mm-hmm. think God allows us to live our lives and allows us to make choices, and I think that God is more interested in us um, journeying towards each other, mm-hmm. and ultimately towards him or her. So another another idea that I've been kind of exploring, and 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 I'd, I'd really like to write it down. This podcast actually really helps me sort out my thoughts too, so I appreciate this. Of course, um, is. So I've been kind of teetering on, okay, I, I know I didn't like religion, but then I still feared God. So then I went back and explored religion and gave it my all and prayed and did all this stuff. And then the only thing I could continuously hear in my own personal meditation was this is kind of bullshit. And a lot of the, is this, was going, this was going to an evangelical type church, you know, one of those, um, I won't, I, never mind. I was going to insult it, but the... And then I got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm agnostic, um, but then everybody keeps saying agnostic's a cop-out. And then I got to another point where, where I'm at now where I asked myself the question, do you believe in God? The, the answer was no. 
Um, not that I believe there is no God. And actually, your brother was the one who planted this seed five, six years ago. You know, you can't disprove a God. Um, so, okay, I'm not going to take the arrogant approach. The, you know, I'm going to take the humble approach and say, I don't believe in God because I have no evidence for it. But I'm not going to stake the claim and be all douchey and say, there is no God. Anybody who believes in a God's an idiot. But I can honestly say that I don't believe. So I still consider myself an agnostic because of the fact that I don't know what's next, but I also consider myself an atheist because my belief structure says that I don't believe. Um, so I don't, how do you, if you don't mind me kind of uh, probing on this a little bit, how do you reconcile believing in a God? Because I, I just can't get around that sometimes. I don't discount the, the fact that like likely it's very cultural for me. I mean, I was raised Catholic, mm -hmm. so it feels familiar, right? You know, I think uh, I think it's I think there are a lot of cultural Catholics in America. I think there are a lot of just like there are a lot of cultural Jews, or um, uh, I think that's true of any religion that that um, that you are raised in in a culture that um, can be national and can be spiritual, um, and so I I think. Uh, I think a huge part of why I feel comfortable believing in God is that I never didn't, you know. Um, That's but, probably the best answer yeah. I've heard, yeah. But I also think that I struggled quite a bit in college and right after college um, by testing that belief and and trying to open my eyes to to the, to the parts of that tradition that I don't agree with, you know. Um, when you're when you're 11 or 12 years old, it's very easy to say I'm a Catholic, because all you know is what your parents have mm -hmm. taught you. Yeah. But as your as your world expands and as your perspective expands, either you I think abandon the things that were that were taught to you by your parents, or they have to grow. Sometimes quite painfully, they have to grow and adapt to to encompass a lo much larger perspective of the world. Mm -hmm. I think God wants us to go on that journey. I think God wants that more than anything. I think that I think that ultimately faith doesn't mean anything if it isn't tested, and I ultimately think that belief doesn't mean anything unless it's um, tested and set against other beliefs. I think beliefs help to define for yourself uh, who you are and what you value, and I think I think ultimately I just am not. I question every ideology I encounter, whether that's political, democratic versus Republican, whether it's cultural, American versus, you know, whatever, whoever else, and whether that's spiritual, Catholic versus whatever else. And I think it's, in, it's the essence of arrogance to say, well, I've got, a, I've got the market cornered on the truth of this yeah. because we just, there's no way to know. There's no proof. All I know is um, what what breathes life into me and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And there are elements of all kinds of faiths that I have incorporated into my, into my spiritual being um, that aren't Catholic. But ultimately, when you break it all down, and this is one of the things that, again, if I can recommend reading anybody, Richard, reading Richard Rohr on this topic, we are all asking the same fundamental questions. Whether you're agnostic or atheist, Catholic, Buddhist, uh, Muslim, we are asking the same questions. And that question really is, why am I here and what do I do with my life? Mm -hmm. What do I do with my time and my experience of it? Um, 
And who cares what we call it? Who cares what we, how we define right. it? I don't. Or whether there's, a, there's an outside entity controlling things or overseeing things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think God's ability to respect and admire and create and hold and be in relationship to all kinds of beliefs and ideals, even if that belief is, I don't believe in God, mm-hmm. is so much broader and, and more generous and universal than any of us can imagine or give him or her or they or it credit for. I think to, to, to have the, the arrogance to think we know what, what that is, I mean, like, why would we? Right. You know? It's always nice to explore topics. And I joked about the flat earth thing the other day. But uh, I, I think I'm, like, fascinated with conspiracy theories, whether it's something like the flat earth or the 9-11 towers or whatever it might be. I love and religion. I mean, I kind of almost feel like some ways dogmatic religion kind of falls in, under the same umbrella of, like, ideology where you you're basing things on very little most people that speak about it aren't experts like most preachers aren't experts in uh, the concepts of divinity and forever and you know these are these are big expansive topics that I think some people speak out of turn about but it is fun to kind of explore it right and just and let yourself be in awe of it um, those are the essential human questions it's, it's fun it's just it's a, it's just as fun as going to see a show, right? And so how does this, okay, so you're, we get an idea of, of kind of where your position is on this kind of stuff. How do you, how does this impact your art and your, and your life in that way, but mostly your art? Um, I don't know that it's possible to be a theater artist or at least a successful one and not, um, not come to a profound understanding of, of possibilities beyond your own brain. Um, I think when you start to make truly, truly powerful theater, it encompasses far more than just your own perspective. Mm-hmm. And I say that not, not only as an actor on the inside of projects that feel very collaborative, but when I'm a director as well. Um, you know, when I was a young director, I, I can say, you know, somewhat ashamedly that, that oftentimes as a young director, you walk in the room and you think, well, I've got the best idea. So we're gonna we're all gonna work to like execute my idea because that's what's gonna make this show the best it's gonna be. Um, and even if you even if you try not to consciously think that, that's an element of how you work. Mm-hmm. I think part of your journey is in becoming a grown up is starting to understand the limitations of that. Artistically, uh, there's nothing more limiting than saying I've got all the ideas when you walk into the room. The truth is you don't, you can't, and and. Um, if your process can embrace the um, multitude of like perspectives and the wealth of knowledge that exists when a group of five or six human beings walk into a room together, then the possibilities just grow exponentially. Mm. So the best work I've made um, has, has come when I feel like I've been the most successful at saying, everybody bring your ideas to the, to the stage. And let's just like hash this out and see see what survives see what lives see what works and see what doesn't and you've done some political stuff you did a what yeah. was the one the when was There's that a number I, of political I, I, plays, i'm actually. sorry i haven't i haven't gone to one of your shows in a while right. i'll try um, I've, I've gone this far on the podcast without making you feel bad about it so. well <laughs> <laughs> i think the last one i saw was uh actually the the caveman 
Yeah. Um, and then my daughter went and saw you as Gaston, right? That's in right. That's right. Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. And what? Now she's like married and has kids, right? Well, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> Seventeen. <laughs> she got. A, she got. She still got twenty-one years to go until yeah. she's married. <laughs> yeah. Fifty years. Fifty until, years until she yeah. sees a boy, looks at a boy in the eyes. Um, but what was the one? It was very. It was a post. I, I just remember seeing the flyer for it, and it was very much a political title. I, I, I think you're likely referring to the Apple Family plays. It's a series of plays about a family that, uh, and they each each play takes place on the event on some important political or national of anniversary. Mm. The first one takes place on the two, the day of the 2010 midterm elections, the sort of Tea Party Revolution mm-hmm. elections, um, and the second one is. Uh, you know, a year following that, and the, it was written by a guy who essentially wrote a play every year, sort of addressing the political realities of the you know later Obama years. And did you guys have a relationship with him to where if you keep producing it, we'll put it out for you? Yeah, initially we were gonna we were gonna produce all four plays, uh, one a year, and then all four at the same time, sort of in rep in the last year. Um, and ultimately, they just became too hard of a sell for our company. Mm. Um, they're they're very they feel very rooted in like in the political culture of New York State. Mm. A lot of it is about Albany politics, and so I think ultimately that didn't connect with our audience in the way we had hoped. But there's something beautiful. I we so we we produced the first two and then did the second two as a reading, um, which was satisfying in its own way. But but ultimately, I think. Uh, it'll be an interesting time capsule project, you know, 20 years from now to see how those, what, what resonance those plays have, you know, some years down the line. Because there's something actually quite Chekhovian about that play, because it is just a family in a room having a conversation. What does Chekhovian mean? Oh, gosh. Um, so Chekhov, <laughs> one of the most more famous playwrights in uh, the theatrical world, uh, was a Russian playwright, turn of the century, um, a very famous playwright, actor and director who worked uh, in Moscow and sort of was one of the major movers and shakers in founding the Russian tradition of theater, which is Stanislavski, Chekhov, all those guys. Um, And he wrote plays like The Cherry Orchard or Uncle Vanya, um, The Seagull, Three Sisters, which are kind of the big four plays that have been um, foundationally uh, incredibly important to Western, the the growth of Western theater. So... um, you know, if, if you're talking about like the the big names, you know, there's like Shakespeare and Moliere and Chekhov, or like mm. you know, it's like those are the the English, French, and uh, Russian sort of voices in Western. I've heard of Shakespeare. Theater. Yeah. Well, yeah. there you go. You're halfway or a third, <laughs> a third of the way there. there. All right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, now, would you ever turn down, uh, or have you ever turned down a script because you look at it and not, not maybe, maybe this is a two-part question. One, because of the quality of it, what you think the final end product's going to be or not be, and then also because it, there's a value um, disalignment. That's a really good question. You know, one of the luxuries that you don't often have as a theater artist, at least as an actor, is is being very picky or very choosy about the projects you get to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you like watch if you watch television in the in the political season, in the election season, there're all those commercials, right? All those like actors in commercials doing, you know, Ted Cruz ads. Yeah. 
I can almost guarantee that you know seventy percent of those people don't want to be in that commercial, but it pays. Yeah. And um, and that's work. And so Mark Ruffalo definitely wants to be right. In yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> totally. Um, so there's a certain element, as an actor at least, where that's out of your control, and especially early on in your career, when you're really just looking for gigs to build your resume and to like get people to know your work, you just don't have the luxury to say no. Um, as you get older, as you develop a reputation and a, um, an, uh, an ethos and all of those things, a way of working, I think you get to be a little bit more picky and choosy, especially when you work your way to what we call the other side of the table, you know, when you become a director or a producer, or you join a company like Third Rail um, that's a, an artist's collective, and so we, we choose the plays we produce every year. Um, and so I have a voice, even when I'm just acting in a show, I have a voice in that room that I don't have when I walk into Portland Center Stage because their artistic director will pick their season. I'm not going to have a voice in that selection process. Um, so it, it, it depends. It depends on where you are in terms of your career, and it depends on what your position is. Um, but you, I've, as a director, you, I've certainly turned projects down. Would you, before. Would you? I mean, for example, if there's somebody came along and they made a uh, production or wrote, wrote, a, wrote a play that was very pro-Trump, you know, anti your values, would you turn it down? Um, I would. Yeah. But I would not begrudge an actor or, or a director on. who needed the work. Yeah. You know, because I've been there. I know what that feels like to be lean, mm-hmm. you know, to be living on ramen noodles all the time. Yeah. Now, uh, the, I forgot the question I was going to ask. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So do you have any aspirations towards film, towards uh, television? Yeah, I mean, I like I graduated that. from Loyola Marymount with a film degree. Mm. You know, that's how I ended up working on The Apprentice that first season okay. was when you graduate from film school in Los Angeles, that's what you do. You go work in reality TV for a while. Oh, really? <laughs> um, it's kind of miserable. Uh, but I've always, I've always had the itch to do more video projects and more directing, more film. Um, and more I, acting on film? Um, less acting. I mean, not that I, not that I don't do it. I mean, I auditioned for roles. I shot, you know, a couple of days on a number of movies this year and I was in a Portlandia episode this year. And so I do, I do a fair amount of screen acting. The money is really good and I I enjoy that work. It doesn't turn me on as an actor the way that theater acting does. Mm. Um, but what I really enjoy is being behind the camera on a film set and, and I think that that is still in the cards for me. I mean, obviously, with the proposal video, um, I sort of, even though that was my proposal to my wife, um, it was like a, a very, actually pretty representative sample of the kind of uh, work, video work that I've, I've been interested in. I've made, a, I've made a number of commercials in the aftermath of that or, or consulted on some um, viral video projects. Um, with different companies based on the, the work from that. So I really enjoy doing it. And I think um, as my career progresses as a theater director, when I find those ways for those worlds to align, um, I get really excited about it. Yeah. And so I, I think that, yeah, I think that that will be a part of my future career. Um, and um, I always I always look for those opportunities when I'm not working in the theater. I always, like, what, what kind of video project can I put together right now? What kind of film project could I put together with a couple thousand dollars in, you know, a couple of weeks? Do you have anything in your mind right now? Do you have any uh, that's just kind of been churning for a while that you, you know you want to put down on film one day? 
Um, I wrote a screenplay. I mean, this is sort of another. I feel like I'm just like an entire cliche right now speaking, <laughs> but like, hey, take a look at my screenplay. <laughs> um, I, no, I, I did write a screenplay very recently that I'm I'm pretty excited about. Uh, I, I I think it's it's a long ways from being good in any way, shape, or form. But it's the first idea I've written in a screenplay in years that I actually thought had some potential. Hmm. So I want to develop it and, um, you know, spend spend the time to, like, make it something that I, I think I wouldn't be ashamed to show people and then see if I can cobble some money together to do it. I, I was the director of a, a project called Nelly and Anna for a number of years that we were trying to sort of achieve you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of financing for about a, a, a very small independent film written by Chubb O'Mara, um, about two homeless teenagers living on the street. We got so close to uh, finding the financing for it and came up just short of that. Um, and there's, there is a part of me that is going to keep that project in my back pocket for a long time because I think it actually is a really beautiful and important story and it it sheds light and I think can afford to change people's perspective on you know the the kids you see on the street you know especially in a town like Portland um, and uh, and the difficulty of the lives that they lead so that's a project I've always had in the back of my head that I would like to complete someday and I'm, I'm always really fascinated I watch movies through this sort of critical lens at times um, which is fun most of the time I, I used to not be fun I remember when I was going to get my degree in, uh, in communications where I focused on media I, I realized very early on it was kind of a red pill blue pill thing right from the matrix where I was like okay if I go continue down this degree path I'm not going to be able to watch American Idol without seeing all the production that's going on without seeing all the advertising that's happening within it and, and just it's going to take the joy out of it anyway I, I but I approach movies from a different uh, I, I l allow myself to be lighthearted about it like I really like those some of the this Superman you know and a lot of people that you know gave it they ripped it apart the critics ripped it apart I was like this is fun what you, you know um, so I'm, I'm interested in that bridge and you have a friend who's uh, now I mean he's been he was getting some really great independent roles uh, Chris Sullivan who's now on on this is us mm -hmm. um, as the heavy set guy let's say um, Toby. yes and uh, most people that I talk to say is the best part of the show um, how is it just just because I don't know a lot of people who know a lot of people who they find their way onto the screen um, communicating with him, like, what do you think it is when you see? Because there's thousands of people that are that are on television or they're on movies, and you're like, how did name a name an actor get themselves to the point? What is the thing, the recipe that they have that some actors either don't have or don't want or whatever it might be? Um, what made it possible for him to step in? Do you think, or any but any any other actors? I mean, you've just asked the probably most common question. Like, if you watch 11,000 episodes of Inside the Actor's Studio and they do the little question and answer session yeah. at the end, there's not an episode that won't go by without somebody asking that question. Really? How do you make it? You know, mm -hmm. like, what is the thing that makes you make it? It is an unanswerable question. So, not to spoil this, the, you know, to bury the lead or anything, but no, no, no. ultimately, there's no good answer to it. Um, the reality is the, the closest thing that I know to say that I feel like I actually believe or feels true to me is is actually something I heard on Inside the Actors Studio, which was, I believe it was Tom Hanks's interview. And he said something like, you can't control 
when the opportunities are going to arise. All you can control is whether you're good when they get there. Mm-hmm. So your job as an actor, as a uh, an artist, is to make the best work you can make and let that always be your priority. The opportunities will come and go as they please. And the truth is so many people, some of the some of the best fiercest most talented actors in the world never get the break they deserve and some of the you know least talented actors become world famous mm-hmm. um, there's really li- very little rhyme or reason it's about being in the right place at the right time but more importantly it's about being good when when it gets there um, and there are people like myself you know I've had the proposal video being an example I've had brushes with some really astounding opportunities that a lot of people would leap at and say how do I spin this into my own reality show or how do I you know how do I take this notoriety and and build on it and make it something else that's just never been a priority for me mm-hmm. and I think that that shocks a lot of people a lot of people you know when when we you know when we went mega viral it was like I had um, television stations calling to See if Amy and I yeah, wanted to like, have like our lives USA Today or uh, what was it called? We went um, on Today Show. Good morning. Oh, yeah, Today Show. Today Show. I mean, you, that was a, that looked like it was a fun little ride. I was enjoying was watching quite, you guys. Quite, it was quite a lot of fun. <laughs> it was also extremely stressful. Mm. I I don't know why, but I just am not. I don't feel like I'm built for that world. Mm. Um, and so, unless things feel really right to me, I tend not to say yes to them. And a lot of what came our way didn't feel like oh. Amy and Isaac, what kind of art do you want to make? Mm-hmm. What it felt like was, how can we capitalize on your yeah. moment in the How did you get so many clicks and yeah, likes yeah, and yeah. views? And, yeah. and ultimately, that's all they're, that's all they're trying to mm-hmm. come They're, they're com- trying to capitalize on your art. Right? Yeah. Um, and for me, I want to make stuff. I want to mm-hmm. like, be known for the things that I create and the things that I make, not for the fact that I fell in love with an amazing woman. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's my life. That's my personal life. Yeah. And I am the luckiest human being in the world that I'm married to Amy Frankel. But that isn't what I want to be famous for. Yeah. I want to be famous for the fact that uh, I'm a good artist. I'm a good actor. I'm a good director. I'm, and I make things that people want to see. And so um, my... My, my guiding principle was always just say yes to the things that feel like that's the value. Mm-hmm. Um, but, that, but that is not to say that people who want that exposure and want that fame are wrong. That might be for them. That's totally for them. I think one of the reasons Chris is so successful, Chris Sullivan, my, my best friend, um, is because he finds himself in situations where it seems like he blossoms. You know, His personality and his ability to... Um, authentically and warmly engage the world both in his artistry but also in his personality mm-hmm. um, work wonders for him in his career I think Chris walks into a room and um, even in even if he's anxious I think feels comfortable to people they want to talk to him they and I think there's something about this is before he was famous this is before he was famous right yeah. I mean you met him it yeah. was like you know he's a fascinating human well, being he kind of reminded see me that of, on screen and you want to know more about that you know he, he kind of reminded me i've actually said this to your brother before which is you will always he, I, I don't know if chris is always like this because i've only met him a couple times but um i told your brother once i said you'll always bring the spotlight on yourself but you're never you'll never hesitate to bring somebody else into it with you right so you always like uh, I, I think I got that same sense from Chris is like, I don't know you, you should kind of larger than life, um, impressively in a lot of ways. And you yeah, literally you, in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> and, you don't, five. Right, and you don't, but you don't make me feel any less important than you. 
And I think that that's, that was always a thing. That's and, a great way to put it. But I, I think th your whole family's kind of like that too, uh, yeah, in a lot that of ways. May, that might be true. I think Chris, there's a reason Chris fit right into our family mm -hmm. when he was in our family was that, you know, he just sort of feels like part of the, part of the kin. But I think that, that you're onto something in terms of, in terms of Chris's success, that, that has served him greatly. In addition to the fact that he's an enormously talented actor. Yes. Um, so I am, I, I've just been so thrilled to watch him go through this process. I mean, he's in the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And, and I didn't like watching him die in Stranger Things. Yeah, so I, I know, like, right? I know. He's it. only in that first episode of Stranger Things. Yeah. But I, he just is, his career is really taking off. Yeah. And I'm enormously proud of him. And, and I, uh, I, 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 this sounds like such a cliche, but it really couldn't happen to a better person. Yeah. You know, and I think that more often than not, I really truly believe that the universe rewards people for good behavior. And I think Chris is the absolute example that you do not have to be an asshole to be successful. And you don't have to be cutthroat to make it a, a career out of, out of acting. And you don't have to like piss on other people to get ahead in life. He is generous and warm-hearted and kind. Um, and I think you're right. He, he takes so much of the spotlight because he is larger than life, but he is always bringing someone with him into that, into that realm. And um, it's a beautiful thing to watch him succeed. I'm so proud of him. When I saw you play in the, the Defending the Caveman, um, first of all, are any of your productions online available on video that you know of? I don't think with any sort of so. Quality? I mean, you can you can Google me, and you'll probably find some clips of Caveman yeah. defending the caveman. So it was a really great. It was a comedy skit. It was a one man, longest running one man, one person Broadway show in American history, right? Yep. And it was a comedy skit. I mean, so when I was watching you up there, that was one of the. F probably the first time where I was watching somebody that I know that I've known for years as a pretty much a family member distant family member to some degree and you were playing yourself a little bit there was there was definitely you know your mannerisms and stuff were definitely Isaac but you were stepping outside of yourself and playing something completely like you stuck to script you did everything you were supposed to you sat down when you were supposed to and you did that for what, an hour and a half uh, yeah, almost two hours. Almost two hours, and it was funny, and you engaged, and you had to do this night after night after night, right? In Seattle, wasn't it Seattle? It was that, that, yeah, that, that, the one you saw when we were in Seattle at ACT, yeah. And I, I gotta say, I was, I mean, I, I was thoroughly impressed when just to see somebody have mastered their craft in such a point where there wasn't a moment in that where I was taken out, even though I know you on a personal level. Um, so that's why I've always, I mean, I think you were the one who uh, suggested I get the book, The Stalinslavsky Method. Is oh, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I still Stan have that Lofsky, sitting on, yeah. my on my bookshelf, yeah. unread, so I'm not a famous <laughs> actor yet. But, <laughs> but um, I, think, I think what you do is great, and uh, I, I keep telling my wife, I was like, we need, next time you put something up, we need to get it on the calendar and just make it a priority, because some of your shows seem to come and go pretty quick, right? Yeah, I mean, most theatrical productions in Portland last for about four weeks. They do about a four-week run, okay. so, and, and I'm pretty constantly working, so. What's the next thing you got going on? The next, the next show that I actually am involved in is the Adam's Family Musical at Broadway Rose. I actually play Uncle Fester. Oh, so you can come see me with no hair. Um, uh, which is just a fun, silly, really fun musical that Broadway Rose is doing this summer. Um, and when does then it I, start? It starts, uh, we open at the end of June. Mm. And then it runs into July. So it's a great way to get out of the hot you know, July weather. Come laugh for two hours with the Adam's Family Musical. Okay. Um, and then in the fall, uh, we were talking about this, I think, before we started recording, but in the fall, I just got 
uh, offered a one a one person show at Portland Center Stage that uh, will actually kind of utilize some of my caveman instincts and my caveman uh, you know history with that show. I'll, I'll get to re- reuse those tools again. Um, it's a show called um, Every Brilliant Thing, and uh, it opens at Portland Center Stage at the end of September. So. Um, that'll be a great one to come out and see. Mm. That'd be a good one for you guys to come okay. check out. Cause we'll put links up and we'll put beautiful. links up on the website. Another thing I just wanted to, it just came to mind uh, <laughs> that I use quite a bit actually is from the defending the caveman when you're, and I'm probably butchering this a bit. It's been years, but you are, <laughs> you're driving down the road yep. and you can't find where you're at. You can, don't realize where you're at. And so you turn, turn the volume the radio. on the radio down because yeah. <laughs> as a man, you're, you're hunting, you're, you're hunting. Kinda, yeah. yeah. You're, you're being kind of, it's almost like uh, men are from uh, Mars, women are from Venus type of thing, but it's very, very similar. Yeah. It's almost like, a, it's almost like in very Louis, C- Louis CK in the sense where it's like a man making fun of men yes. by being just sort of dopey and, uh, you know, thinking with his dick and everything else. And, <laughs> But I just I, I use that with my daughter sometimes when she's driving and she's m- misses a s- stop sign or something. I'm like, turn, turn down, down the radio. radio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got to focus. Yep. You gotta, you gotta, yeah, especially when you're looking for a parking spot. You're yeah. just like, turn that radio down. How can you possibly parallel park with the music going, right? Nope, it's not possible. <laughs> not possible. <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, man. Thanks yeah. so much for coming on. Hey, Lathan, I've, lo- I've loved it. Yeah, good. good luck, man. Good. Awesome. And there you have it, my conversation with Isaac Lamb. You can go to thirdrailrep.org to check out some of Third Rail Repertory Theater's upcoming shows, and you can easily Google his name, Isaac Lamb, A-Z-A-A-C-L-A-M-B, to find out what projects he's been involved with and will be involving himself with in the future. I'll also leave some links in the show notes, so feel free to check that out at uh, cafemedium.com. You'll also be able to find links to the show's affiliates, such as Urban Creatives, who designed the brand identity for Cafe Medium, DJ Sacrilicious, who produces Soundtrack, uh, and James Dunbar, whose art can be found on the welcome page of the website. Thank you so much for tuning in, and please continue to join the conversations.